so, let's see. I covet your prayers. Um, it's been a tough week, but, you know, life goes on. I am, I'm, I'm, I am working my way through Acts, as you probably know if you've been around, but not straight through, because I want us to land, I want us to kind of get through as much of Acts as we can, and, and in September we're going to pick up some Genesis narratives that I'm kind of excited about looking at together. But I wanted to kind of scan through Acts, and I'm kind of reading through it all, and I'm I'll be honest, the, the passages that just hit me, those are the ones, let's do this, let's talk about this on Sunday, and that's Acts 13, 1 through 3, three verses, kind of caught my eye, and that's what I'm going to be talking about. I want to, the reason I want to do this and kind of look at Acts, I want us to get an idea of what a growing um, spirit-led church looks like. That's what we see throughout Acts. The church, as we talked about, just continues to face struggle. And yet, and that's what keeps coming out, the church went on from there, grew stronger, multiplied. So this is what we're looking at. Um, Acts 13, 1 through 3, we see a, a snapshot, a picture of a church in Antioch, an early church, one of the early churches, um, and what it looks like. So I'm, I'm going to read it. Let me just read it. Chapter uh, 13, verse 1 says this. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers... Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Let me pray. Yeah, would you be at work in us by your word, by your spirit? It's in your name. Amen. You know I love the kids or voices more important than mine most times, so it's, it's cool. Um, although, just if you're curious, there is an available nursery. In the summer, it's not staff, but it's there if you need it. But I don't have a problem at all with younger voices. I think they're more important than mine, and I'm saying that because I like to make that real clear all the time. And anybody who does, Jesus needs to work on you. So, <clears throat> a few things that, that stood out to me um, in this passage about what a church ought to look like. The first, and this is, I will be honest, this is the reason, this is the thing that I was reading that just caught my eye. And I'm like, that's interesting that Luke would write that. By the way, Luke, who wrote Luke, also wrote Acts. And... It's fascinating that he said this, this listing of these individuals. The church should be, and this is point number one for those of you taking notes, an unlikely group of people. It's a very unlikely group of people. You have, first of all, you have Saul is in this church. Saul, you might remember, is the guy who was murdering Christians a few chapters back. As a matter of fact, and as you read through, you'll find that the church in Antioch likely exists primarily because of Paul. Because he was murdering Christians and they ran from him to Antioch. True story. They fled Saul, among others, to go to Antioch to kind of get away from the persecution that was happening in Jerusalem. That's how the church there was established, and here you have now Saul, 
<laughs> not who you'd expect to be one of the leaders and preachers and prophets and teachers in the, in the church there. He's certainly one. Um, let's see, who else do we have? Simeon. It calls him the Niger, which is where we get our word for Nigeria. It's, it comes from the Latin for black. And that's the word. That's where it comes from. And so this guy was ethnically not Jew. We talked about that before, how at this point there was some tension between can you be not Jewish and still be a Christian? And there was a little bit of struggle there. And this guy, Luke tells us he was dark African person. And here he is as a part of that church in Antioch. You got Lucius of Cyrene, who is probably Jewish. We don't get a lot of information about these people from anywhere else other than their names and some hints that we might find in a couple other places. But he was probably Jewish, but he would have been a Hellenistic Jew. So you got a Saul and a Barnabas. Let me explain the difference. Who are, uh, they are culturally Jewish. Lucius is probably an ethnic Jew born to that lineage of people, but culturally, he's Greek. That's what a Hellenistic Jew is, a, a, a person in this era who is ethnically a Jew, but culturally, they hardly know their own language. They can't read, you know, Hebrew, or they're, they're, they're Greek, even though they're... So he, you got Barnabas and Saul, very come from a very strict background of you act like this if you're going to be one of us. And they're in church with a guy who probably doesn't speak the languages they grew up speaking because he's Hellenistic. And then in my favorite, and the one that stood out to me the most, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Another translation for that is probably who was raised with Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch was Herod who was just a chapter ago, I didn't read this, but in chapter 12 is murdering Christians in Antioch. He's, he's sending people out to go find Christians, hunt them down and kill them. And you've got one of the leaders of the church here who is a lifelong friend of Herod who grew up alongside him. I just think it's an unlikely group of people to come together, culturally diverse, I mean, their friendships, you have a friend over here, and yet to have a friend here, I probably got friends who might, some of you might not like, right? You probably got some friends I wouldn't like. That, that's an unlikely group of people to come together and, and be on one common purpose. I think that's what the church should be. I think that's why Luke includes all of that. Otherwise, I mean, he, he didn't have to give us that list. Like he said, these guys were just praying and worshiping the Lord. But he tells us who they are, I think, so that we can get an image in our minds that we ought to be an unlikely group of people. I don't necessarily mean diverse. I mean unlikely. It's easy, right? It's easy to come together as people who, you know, wherever the church is, right? You could take a church in, say, South, South City, Chicago, and you, you, you know, it'd be comfortable for that church, for instance, to all have the same sort of demographics, racially, ethnically, linguistically, socioeconomically, that the, the, these people are alike, right? 
Same is true in Bismarck, right? It'd be easy to have a church where, you know, I mean, what, Bismarck, come on, we are 98% white, so white, you know, middle class, you know, certain, meet certain socioeconomic, all the same, right? But what's powerful, and I think what's powerful in this picture is when, and think, I'm, I'm thankful, I'm really grateful that I don't, I don't, I'm, even as I'm looking out, I don't think we struggle with this here. I don't. But I think as we rub shoulders <laughs> with people who are different than us, we get shaped. Right? It's real easy. It's real easy to sit in a room full of people and say, yes, I agree. I agree. I agree. You, you, you know, sound like those seagulls, except we're not saying mine. We're saying yes. You know, Finding Nemo. Yes, 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 yes. And, and nobody, nobody gets challenged, but, but when I have to kind of sit there and love someone with, you know, an alligator tattoo on their face, maybe, or whatever, uh, we, then we are pushed to be a little more uncomfortable and to love someone that is different than us, who has different values maybe than we do, who comes from a different background and a different way of seeing the world than we do. And it's right there that the gospel begins to be at work in us. It's right there where we learn to, say, to lay aside lesser things and to listen maybe to perspectives that we've never heard before. That is what the church ought to be. And we ought to be. It's, it's sometimes a struggle. It's sometimes a struggle. But we need to be people who are willing to listen to and love and hear from people who maybe don't have the same linguistic, socioeconomic ethnic, cultural background that we do. It's very valuable. Church should be that. The second thing that stood out to me as I looked at this is that the church here and everywhere functions as fully human. That's the best way I knew to put it. To be fully human. To be what we were made to be. The, the text, the passage says, set them apart for what I have called them to do. To be fully human is to do what you were made to do. To be what you were made for. I think it's, a, it's, it's simple. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Be fruitful, multiply, and take, have dominion. Now that doesn't mean go out and like bash things with baseball bats. Some people have... It means to go out and build. <laughs> to pre- reproduce and to conquer in the sense in which we build culture, agriculture, education systems, banking, uh, you know, all kinds of medicine, uh, whatever is out there, go, God says, go to humans early on, image me, reflect me. I have created, and now I'm calling you to go into the world with your creativity and make things beautiful as image bearers of God. <laughs> Purpose, dignity, image, these are all things that, that we are to do as, as He has called us to do, as He's told us to do. And to be fully human is to do what we were made to do. First lie that Eve hears, you can be like God. You can do that. You can determine purpose. 
you get to make the decisions as to how you get to live and why you live and what your, your purpose is. It's up to you. You can do that. <laughs> it's, it's not new. That lie's been around for a long time, ever since Eve heard it from the serpent's lips. But I think it's been articulated really well by a guy named John Paul Sartre. This guy died in 1980. But this is what he said. This is what he wrote. He said, first of all, man exists, turns up, appears on the scene, and only afterwards, listen, defines himself. At first, this is Paul, John Paul Sartre, at first he is nothing. Only afterwards will he be something, and he himself will have made him what he will be. In other words, when Adam and Eve show up in the garden, according to John Paul Sartre, they're nothing. But after eating the fruit, and after getting, deciding that they have the right to define themselves and articulate their own purpose, this is what we are here for, that's what Adam and Eve... When they say that, then they become something, according to John Paul Sartre. Again, that's not new, nor is it strange. I actually, uh, I think it's deeply human. I think it's powerful. But I'm going to tell you, uh, I also see that same logic in a movie I watched recently. Some of you might have too, the Barbie movie. It's a good movie. And I'm trying not to spoil it because I'll, I'll recommend it. There, there's some really good parts to the story. Some deeply human truths, deeply, I think, listening to my wife and daughter, things that, that only women can possibly understand. There's some good stuff in it. So I, I recommend it. And I'm trying not to spoil it here. But that's, the same thing is true. And the, the narrative of the movie essentially... There were, I, was, I kept hoping throughout the movie that they would define themselves. That, and Ken and Barbie would come to a place where they were like, we exist together. You know? Uh, and that's not quite where it went. Um, but there is a powerful scene, and it's, it, it's almost heartbreaking in its beauty. And it's, while Billie Eilish is singing the song, <laughs> What Was I Made For? And Barbie is having a really important conversation again, no spoilers, where she's trying to figure that out. What was I made for? And I think at the end, and again, I'm not going to, I'm really trying to give it away, but the movie answers the question, what was I made for? The same way Jean-Paul Sartre answers it. The same way the serpent answered it. And I think the same way many of us are inclined to answer it. And that answer is this, to figure that out. To go and define yourself. That's what you were made for. Now that is a deeply human longing. There's not a single one of us, I don't think, who can listen to the lyrics of that song, Billy Eilish's song, and not, on some level, relate. We do, because I still... I'm pushing 50, and I want to know what I'm made for. <laughs> like, that is, that is a deeply human feeling to wonder that 
and to, to be a little uncertain and to need to have an answer to that question. But our culture's answer to that question, Barbie's answer, the serpent's answer, <laughs> is to define yourself. That's what you were made for. And we've talked about that before, how that, that answer is deeply unsatisfying. Matter of fact, you want to know how unsatisfying? I saw this, this statistic recently, and I was like, I don't, I, don't, I don't know how they measure this. Maybe somebody can help me. But um, apparently, the average high school student today struggles with the same level of anxiety and depression that the average psychiatric patient struggled with in 1950. I, in part, blame the belief that is prevalent, that it is our, our job, our purpose, to define who we are and sustain ourselves. To create our own identity is far too high a demand on a creature that was not made to do that. Instead, we were made to live. We were told, this is what you're here for. It's all over. This is what you were made for. Now go be what I've made you to be, which is filled with dignity, filled with beauty, filled with glory and the image of God. There is a lot of goodness in what we were made to be. And God says, just go do that. And we say, but what if I get to be like God? <laughs> I'll believe that lie from the serpent. And then I'll go and I'll destroy myself. Absolutely destroy myself in an effort to become something that I was not made for. Church is called to just be. To be what we were made for. And I think it's in that that we can do the third thing. It says the church worships. They were worshiping the Lord. That's what they were doing in the moment. They were worshiping the Lord. <laughs> the human heart, I've read this. There's an old dead guy said this. The human heart is an idol factory that we just turn out idols left and right. Another way I've heard it put more recently is we don't get to decide if we will worship. We only get to decide what we will worship. We all worship something. Uh, you know, I mean, celebrity culture, huge, right? I mean, the, the whole idea, people, I, I don't want to just blame people, because the whole magazine industry is built on, who's Jennifer Aniston dating this week? Or, you know, what dress did so-and-so wear to the thing, right? Like, we, we just love to, to know what's, what's really, what are they doing? And the, to an extent, while I think it has a little bit higher value to society, I think royal, the royal thing can be similar to that. The reason we worship celebrities in America is because we don't have kings. Uh, so I, I'd rather have a king. But still, it, it has that tendency, right, that magazine industry, the, the entertainment industry, the music industry, the fashion industry are all built on celebrity worship, understanding, wanting to be like. That's maybe another one. Reputation, I call it. But wanting to be seen a certain way through other people's eyes, 
needing other people to think a certain thing of us. That's, I think, some level an idol. It's the reason, true story, when I was in the fifth, fourth or fifth grade, anybody else remember these? I had, I had, I had to have these shoes that, and if you're not about my age, you might not remember because they only lasted about a year and a half. They were called ruse, and they had a little zipper on the side for your lunch money. You, they were, yeah, they were so important, right? You, I had to have those. But not because I wanted to keep my lunch money in my shoe, because I wanted people to see that I was wearing ruse, right? Same thing, I mean, you know, later it happened with Tommy Hilfiger or Adidas or whatever, right? We want, but, but the real idol is not the shoes or the, the shirt or what, it's, it's I want other people to see me in a certain way. And we play that out in a number, you know, we, sometimes we bring that idol to work. And we either work ridiculously hard or we manipulate and lie or we twist or, you know, we, so that other people will see us a certain way. If we let go of the idol, we can just be. There's freedom in that. Um, security. <laughs> Security. That's why we check the Dow or the S&P, right? Where's, where's that going? Or our kids' future? It's also, if I, I, I think, and I've thought about this, I think that our, our idol of security to be safe or comfortable, right, is actually a big part of what fuels the culture war that goes on. You know, our, because we want our kids to have the same economic or cultural or political world that maybe we knew we want for them what we and 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 or 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 let's take the other side of the culture war we you know we want to have more authority or more power in culture right we want to so that we can ensure our own security that's what it is and when our idols are threatened (laughs) what do we do well people have said it I hear arguments all the time about all the wars religion causes. No, religion doesn't cause wars. Idolatry does. When we go to war, when our idols are threatened. So that's why I think the culture war is a product of an idol of security and comfort that we've developed in our, in our culture. We've got to let these idols go. But we worship. <laughs> we, we, all of us. All of us. It doesn't matter. You might be like, you might be here today, and you're like, I'm not sure I believe in Jesus. That's fine. Answer this question. All of us. Not wherever you are on that. Answer this question for me. What is the one thing that if I had it, I know I would be okay? Just think about that for a minute. Like, you know, might be a certain relationship. It could be a job, it could be just money, it could be a car, it could be anything. This one thing, if I had it, then, then I'd be okay. You just identified one of your idols. Because I promise you this, you're not going to be okay. It'll be something else. Or that thing will fall apart or die or something's going to go wrong. Whatever that is, whatever that thing is, it is not going to make you okay. But believing for just a minute even, that would make it better. That, that, is, that reveals a little bit of what's going on in some of the idolatry that we have. Now, that's not new. The church has been making false idols since before Jesus got out of the grave. We've been doing that. 
We've been doing it throughout all time, and we'll continue to do it throughout all time. (laughs) I know we will, because that's what we do. But I do think this. I think that as we are able to find our purpose in being his. That's the, you know, we come from a tradition that has this question, what's your only comfort in life and death? Only comfort is that I am not my own. Not my own, but I belong, body and soul, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's, that's what that says. And, and that is a comfort. Now, if we can lean into that. Now, I know how hard that is because I identify a million other things that will make me comfortable. I do, all the time. I've got a lot of answers to that question. What is the one thing that if I had it, I'd be okay? A lot of answers. But I know better. I just don't always know better. <laughs> right? But the more we lean into that, the more we, we, we really are able to rest and find comfort in the fact that we are not our own. When we don't get to identify and, and define ourselves, we are made for God, by God, for His glory and for our good. He longs to see human flourishing, image, delight, glory. He wants to see that. But the only way to get that is to say, I'm not my own, I'm yours. But the more that we do that, the more we will find comfort, the more we will find hope, the more we will find grace, and the more we do that, the more our hearts will be turned to worship. Just like this morning when I was singing and I'm I'm questioning. Even as I'm singing, I'm questioning. Do I mean this? Is this even true? But the more... I find my rest in Christ. <laughs> and the more I experience His purpose for me and, the, and, and His love for me in spite of the fact that, yeah, I sometimes doubt. In spite of all that, and the more I rest and I find it, the more my heart will actually be drawn to worship. Not merely to stand here and sing words on a screen, but actually to worship. Because I've found my purpose. I've found my comfort I found my hope and I found my rest in belonging, body and soul, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And when we find that, I think that leads us fully, wholeheartedly into worship. That's what I think we're called to be. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you that you're good. Thank you that you are patient with struggling people. Will you help us to be what we were made for? Help us to understand that our purpose is defined by you. (sighs) And help us to see that not as a burden, but as a comfort. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.